Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, welcome to GodPod number 49. We are nearly at number 50. Homing in on the half century. Get your party hats ready. <laughs> yeah, next time round, we will celebrate wildly. Streamers, champagne, hats, chocolate cake, lots of them. Yeah, but not this time. Mike uh, in a sparkly outfit. <laughs> yes, that will really help <laughs> the, the listeners, won't it? Yeah, yes. I know. I'm not sure I want to think about that. <laughs> really. So next time, not that you'll be able to enjoy it much on the. Um, when you're listening to this, but we'll be having a fun time next time because we celebrate number 50. But they could buy their own champagne, their own streamers, their own party. That's a very good idea. So I recommend for the next one, you get yourselves ready, get your champagne, get your chocolate cake, and sit down and enjoy it in a festive mood. Yes. But today is not. Today is more of a Lenten one. Yes, it's not champagne. It's real pain. <laughs> That's right. We're, um, so, we're, yeah, we're sitting in our normal room, and um, we've got our coffee and our biscuits Sort of very uh, small biscuits this time, has to be said. I had one. You Hence had the one. penitential field to which you are alluding. Exactly, that's right. Yeah. So we're preparing. We're we're, we're kind of a sort of Advent yes. thing, which is nearly Advent actually when we're recording this. Um, although I did actually see somebody, one of the people who um, sent through a, um, a, an email to to Godpod, did say that they're that um, they've been enjoying the podcast immensely and their biscuit intake has increased in support of you in the studio. Do you think we'd be liable for somebody's uh, cholesterol levels? <laughs> Slightly worrying thought, isn't it? Then again, we can probably claim some, some, some um, I don't know, credit in the profits of the biscuit industry. That's true. Yes, but we could pass on... Get the, a sponsor. Godpod brought to you by... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <Big> Vitties. It's <laughs> a very good idea. I think we should go for it. Anyway, uh, yeah, back to where we started. Well, welcome to Godpod 49. And um, as you can probably tell from the voices around, uh, I am um, it's Graham Tomlin here, who um, often hosts these things, and Mike Lloyd is here. He is indeed. And uh, we also have Stephen Backhouse back again. And um, if you are relatively new to Stephen, you will you may have heard Stephen a couple of times. He came in as a guest some time ago on a Godpod, but he's now part of our staff here at St Paul's Theological Centre in London. So um, he's uh, more regular. I just no. never left the, the chair and you just had to find <laughs> some use for me. Exactly. <laughs> just sat in the studio for years. That's very sadly, Jane isn't here today and um, her dulcet tones will not be gracing this God body. No. Which is a real shame, but she's, um, she's off doing something else somewhere else. But I'm sure she's so, thinking of us. It gives us a chance to say what we really think. <laughs> no, I she'll really hear it anyway. I miss her and I wish she was here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Exactly. So um, we're going to pitch in with some... Um, questions and again thank you to everybody who has emailed in there's loads of stuff here really interesting questions piles of paper on our on our table here and of, of course the great sadness is always that we can't try we can't answer all of them well we can't answer them anyway but um, <laughs> can't we haven't got time um but we do we picked out a few from uh, people who've uh, emailed in from uh, different parts of the world to um to have a go at answering them and tried to pick out some of the ones that we thought were particularly interesting and um the first one we're going to look at is um, comes from Warren and Irene Klimenhager. I don't know if I quite pronounced that right, but um, sounds a great name. Um, and uh, this is one that comes from Nom Pen in Cambodia. I think probably our first. That's a first for Godpod. I think it is. I don't think we've ever answered a question from oh. Cambodia before. Um, but uh, 
They have been living there for a while and working with a Christian humanitarian organization. But uh, the question that um, comes, which I thought was a really interesting one, hmm. is this. That uh, the Earth is a minor planet rotating around an insignificant star in an, un- in an undistinguished galaxy that is one among billions of others in the unfathomable vastness of our universe. It sounds like the beginning of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Not to mention a possible multiverse, of course. Indeed. Um, so how does theology make sense of a God that encompasses this utter vastness while at the same time choosing to relate in a personal way to each human being on this almost infinitely trivial planet? So much of Christian theology reads as if a large part of God's attention is focused on the earth, while the earth is in fact nothing in, nothing in the span of the universe. How does theology handle this paradox? So um, there's a question. That, and it's a question that often occurs to me actually when I fly. I don't know where you get this thing, but you know, when you, you're not sort of flying above some continent somewhere and you're looking down on Asia or America. And it all looks, Cambodia. Or Cambodia. <laughs> And it all looks terribly sort of small, doesn't it? And human life seems rather sort of even human life with on the planet itself seems very significant given the size of of the earth. And and that question of the the apparent triviality of of us of human life on the planet, but even the planet within the vastness of the universe, does raise the question of well, why you know yeah all this sort of what seems like a kind of um, Terra-centric, Earth-centric view of, of of life that you get in, in in the Bible does that kind of fit with what we now know of of the universe? So, um, so yeah. Any anyone want to have a go at this one? Um, Mike, Stephen. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It it is a kind of strange paradox, and yet it does seem to be consistent with everything that we know of God from Scripture. That He chooses the kind of obscure and not the central he works on the periphery more than in the center that when he chooses to become incarnate it's not into rome and into imperial status it's into something in a bywater out on the edge of the empire uh, a peasant girl uh, and a cattle trough and uh, that seems to be the way he works, that he doesn't choose to work the way everybody else would assume that was the sensible way of working, which is in the most mm. prestigious places, in the most powerful places, in the most central places. He works in bywaters and um, off-scourings. I guess I would take a, a slightly different approach to Mike there. I, I think that's true about in terms of human history, but the question is asking a bit of a wider one about just the importance of human humanity at all in a way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and, and christian theology is almost unashamedly anthropocentric in some ways it, it it says it actually makes the bold claim that yes humans are important and it's funny the question talked about a, a paradox between this kind of the the, the wide universe and then uh, the little earth but i don't think it's a paradox i think it's just a clash of values it's a value judgment here that 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 question is implying and and i feel like one of the claims that christianity makes is that actually the earth is valuable uh, mm. it's not it's not a it's not a paradox here there's just a, a value judgment of mm-hmm. the earth is valuable humans are important and uh, jesus became a human thus kind of stamping that divine approval on humanity i i mean um um, Karl Barth, I was had to speak about him a while ago, and he talking about his doctrine of creation, and he says one of the the major question is not how did things become created, it's why is there creation at all, mm-hmm. and uh, and he ties that in directly to this idea that 
um, that Jesus is God's revelation and that God's revelation only comes, God reveals himself in and how he relates to humans and thus making humans really important, even if they don't mm. seem to be on any kind of out, outward. But again, that seems to me to fit with yeah. other ways in which God works. I mean, Israel, the use of Israel as yeah, his chosen true. people, you know, yeah. they're not the most numerous, they're not the most powerful, they're not the best morally necessarily, um, and yet he just happens to choose them and work with them. And that does give them an, an exalted status, but not an exalted status over against everybody else. Mm. It's an exalted status for everybody else. Do you not like that, that idea that, that Christianity almost celebrates humanity? I think, oh, absolutely. I love that idea that yeah, it celebrates humanity. Right. But but humanity as the representative of the whole creation in the same way as Israel as the, the representative of the whole of humanity. Yeah. Well, I guess because the, the question here, I suppose, is about, um, yeah, about the sort of centrality of Earth and humanity to the whole cosmos. So do, do you think, therefore, that, so, for example, if there were other worlds, if there are other planets on which there may have been a fall, um, would God in some way have become incarnate in those planets, those worlds, or actually does the incarnation of the word in Jesus Christ um, on earth, is that valid for the whole of the cosmos? And um, I think I kind of know what Mike might say to this. But why anyway? don't I be boringly predictable uh, and say, it seems to me that, that Paul's vision in Colossians and Ephesians is that the cross avails for all things. Mm. Um, and he's quite explicit about that. And by all things, I, I take him to mean all things in, things, prin in principle. Or, yeah. or, yes. Um, and I suppose it, it, it's also, I mean, Speaking on your behalf, Mike, what you would say. Um, I suppose it's where your 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 theme of the fall of the angels does help in a way, because I suppose if it's if the fall is primarily a human fall, it is quite earth centric. It does seem to sort of just affect the earth, and then it leaves open the question of well, what about the rest of the the universe uh, and everything else? Whereas I suppose if if the human fall is a as a result of some sort of prior angelic fall, which is a more cosmic thing then that particularity of the human fall doesn't seem quite so um so difficult I because think it's there's a more there is a more sort of cosmic fall to begin with which which you can see how that affects the whole universe and then god chooses to redeem that through the particularity of earth humanity christ everything else you're describing the the overarching narrative of cs lewis's science fiction trilogy am i because well, yes. he took my yes, view, true. he'd obviously read yeah. my work I'd, on the subject. I'd, I'd recommend <laughs> he kind of uh, foresaw it to, to, check, to seek that out, really, because that is that mm. is roughly what he. Yeah, um, Earth's uh, the yeah. first book is called "Out of the Silent Planet," and the silent planet is Earth, and, yeah. and its yeah. um, its marginal existence in the universe is explained by the fact that it fell out of the so the song of the universe, it, the the fall of yeah. Earth, which okay. was a kind of an angelic fall. Yeah. Has taken it out of the the big sort of interweaving yeah, dance true. of the universe, which Lewis describes in a much better way than I am right now. Yeah. Uh, and that's and a lot of that is uh, is about the reintegration of Earth back into creation. That's that is a lot of what those mm. books are about. Mm. And, and I, I love that series of books, and I, mm. I think they're much over neglected and underrated set of novels. My 
difference is that I, th- I actually think that just as the cross kind of works for the whole cosmos, so I actually think the fall works for the whole cosmos. I'm not sure. Do you mean, do you mean, do you mean the, 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 the angelic fall? Well, the I, human fall I do. Both? I, I mean both, I think. Yeah. Um, because I, I believe that the, the angelic fall is what made it go wrong in the first place and that human beings were called then to put it right, to fill the earth and subdue it. But their failure to put it right mm. means that it, mm. you know, the whole cosmos is now not right. But the, the point at which I disagree with Lewis is that I think that the whole of the universe is fallen. Right. It is, if we escaped this planet and went off to mm. Alpha Centauri, yeah. um, did Alpha courses on Alpha Centauri, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the point is we need to do Alpha, Alpha courses on yeah, Alpha right. Centauri because right, they're right. fallen. Yeah. Um, mm. And no, Christ didn't need to become incarnate in the whole green flesh. Um, because he's already become incarnate, and, and that counts but for, that brings for back all things. That sort of unashamed anthropocentrism of Christian theology, which is mm. what humans do matters. God has yes. bound, yes. you know, he's thrown his lot in yeah. with humans, as it were, and, and, it and what a, we do matters. It is a very sort of stark difference, isn't it, between what Christians say about humanity from what the atheists do? Because, of course, Dawkins and his friends make a make a quite a virtue out of the fact that we are completely insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. We do yes. not matter yes. in the big scale of things, and uh, we just better get used to it and not get too big ideas about ourselves. And the Christ, Christian yeah, Christian theology is far too sort of um, and it makes too big a deal out of all of this. But actually, yes, in some ways we do make a big deal out of it. We yeah. actually say that that human beings matter, and pastorally, that's a really significant thing because yeah. you you tell telling each individual that they matter as, yeah. as, a, as a consequence. Right. Oh, I think that's right. And it wouldn't wor- worry me if we discovered you know, other life on other planets um, or even more intelligent, more advanced life mm. on other planets. Again, God doesn't seem to be a respecter of the qualities of the people that he yeah. calls, yeah, yeah. Um, just as Israel was mm. not the most numerous or the most intelligent, mm. yet he right. chose them. So humanity may not be the, the only or indeed the most intelligent or advanced life form, and yet he's mm. chosen us for this particular mm. purpose. Mm. Yeah. Very good. So I guess our, our um, uh, hopefully that's begun to to make some inroads into that question. But I think um, I think Stephen's suggestion of taking up C.S. Lewis's um, science fiction trilogy is a very good one to kind of take that forward. Can, can I just also say? I mean, it's be very interesting to see, and I don't know the answer to this, but uh, what the universe will look like when it's all put right at the putting right of all mm. things. Do these planets that are currently rubble? You know, are they meant for life? Are they meant for habitation? Um, will they mm. become vegetative and luscious and inhabitable uh, when things are put right or begin to be? Um, who knows? Mm. But it's possible. Intriguing. That's right. Yeah. And, and just um, talking about C.S. Lewis in, in, in passing, just um, uh, just a few days ago, we, we had our annual lecture here at St. Paul's Theological Centre, which was... Um, Given by Dr. Michael Ward, who is um, chaplain at St. Peter's College in Oxford, which is a, which is on on his book at Planet Narnia, which has sort of shaken the world of C.S. Lewis scholarship and um, uh, heady world, the heady world, of <laughs> and uh, it certainly claims to have uncovered the the secret to, to um, the Narnia stories and what really underlies it uh, as a structure. And it's a it's a it's a brilliant and fascinating theory and, and book. And so um, uh, that. Um, that lecture should be up on our SBTC website sometime fairly soon. So, um, if and by the time you're listening to this, it probably is already. So, you might want to look at the right. St. Paul's Theological Centre website 
Um, and uh, just Google that and you'll find it and uh, you should be able to download that lecture which is a really interesting, interesting. Yeah. A serendipitous plug I didn't even mean to be giving a plug exactly. to, the, to the lecture yeah. <laughs> very, very <good>. <laughs> Graham <laughs> never misses an opportunity yeah, it's all part of the plan <laughs> <laughs> your timing was very good so thank you Warren for your um, question and uh, we'll go on to another one now which is um, vaguely related isn't it which is vaguely related and this um, we are moving now from Cambodia to Birmingham Alabama um, I'm trying to say that in the right accent because it's not Birmingham, it's Birmingham. And uh, this is from um, Edmund Perry, who's a good friend of, um, of a few of us here at SPTC. And his question is this one. Uh, in Luke 10:18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Does that refer to Satan's being cast out of heaven upon his rebellion, presumably at or before creation, or to his more recent dislocation associated with Jesus' incarnation? So there's there's kind of two parts to this question. That's the first one, and I think Mike has the answer. <laughs> uh, well, I think I think I do. Um, do you always do? <laughs> no, and well, I always think I do. Is what you mean? Exactly. Uh, That's what I mean. It, in context, what has happened is that Jesus has just sent out the seventy-two, the wider group than the twelve, yeah. um, to preach the kingdom uh, in around Israel, uh, and they've come back and they've told him of all that's happened and their excitement of all that's happened uh, through them and through their ministry. And Jesus' response is, uh, particularly to the fact that even the demons submit to us in your name, he says, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, he's obviously not there referring to the original expulsion of Lucifer from heaven, because this is in the middle of human mm -hmm. history. Uh, and in the middle of his own ministry. But it seems to me that he tells that story, he expresses his joy in a way that assumes uh, a prior knowledge of uh, a prior fall um, of, the, of the angels and of Lucifer from heaven. And you get the same thing in Revelation 12. You get uh, there being war in heaven and a battle between uh, Michael and Satan. Um, and that looks like it's the, the story of the original expulsion uh, of Lucifer from heaven. And, but actually, it all takes place, um, we're, we're told that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, the martyr's testimony. So this is in the middle of, Chris, of Christian history. Mm -hmm. yeah, this yeah. isn't the original fall of Satan from heaven. Um, so, but in, on the other hand, again, it looks as if he's, whoever's written Revelation has done that, told that story in a way that reflects a, a prior story, as if they're saying, look, it's happened again. Not only was Satan defeated in the first place, but he's being defeated again now in the cross and in the um, mission of the 72 and in the testimony of the martyrs. Um, if you want to know where that story comes, um, I don't myself believe it's there in the Old Testament, although there are hints of it maybe. Um, it actually comes in uh, a book called To Enoch, which is a Jewish apocalyptic um, text. Very difficult to date, but I personally date it in the first century BC, which means that people like Jesus and the author of Revelation would have known it, and they've shaped what they say in the light of it um, and seem to believe it. That bit of it anyway, that bit of to Enoch, um, the story of the, the fall of mm. Lucifer from the expulsion of Lucifer from, from heaven. Mm -hmm. so there we go. You're looking puzzled, Stephen. Well, I, I, I always, I'm always wary when uh, when people take very evocative lines like that and then from various bits of scripture and then weave it all together as if they've come up with a, a, a rock-solid uh, picture of, of the way the universe works, you know. And 
and mm. I'm I'm really glad that Mike has sort of talked about this that some of the development of some of these ideas mm-hmm. rather than this isn't um, mm. Jesus and the Book of Revelation are not telling us some um, some story that happens on a timeline that you can point to past, present, and future and. Yeah. Um, it's more evocative. I mean, it's a bit like, I don't know, Mike, maybe you disagree with me. Would, is it a little bit like the way that we would say, I don't know, they say that the American Revolution started with a, a shot heard round the world, or we say that the fall of the Berlin Wall shook Europe. Mm-hmm. And we don't literally mean that the fall of the Berlin Wall physically caused tremors around Europe, but we do mean that it is an event that was evocative that everyone can look to and and can place themselves in relation to. Is that sort of what's happening, do you think, when Jesus is talking about these things? Um, I think there's the defeat a, of that, evil? that sort of language, certainly, right. it, it, apocalyptic language is full of the sort of language that we recognize in our own language and culture, but not in, someone, in, in the, an old one. Mm-hmm. For instance, we talk about, as you say, about an earth-shattering event. We don't mean literally that yeah. it shatters. Um, so and when, similarly, but if, we were, if we were to build up a, a big picture of what exactly, how exactly Satan fell and what exactly happened... Do you think that we are taking some of these biblical language a bit too literally? Well, Is I, it like taking the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall as literally a... Well, of course, it was literally a fall. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think unless one thinks that um, there was some event or process by which uh, there was a rebellion within the angelic realm mm-hmm. and then in the human realm, mm-hmm. you're... Uh, handicapped or straitjacketed when it comes to dealing with the problem of evil because then it looks as if God's invented the world in which things are already messed up unless they actually become messed up yeah. um, in a historic, at some point of an historical process um, then God's the only one you can blame yeah. and also it seems to me that if you without some kind of fall that take place that takes place at some stage in time rather than before time then you haven't got a category for thinking that things could ever get back yes. to or you know, to, to, to become um, right again. Because if they're actually, built in. If, if the world has always been full of good and evil and messed up and everything else, it's very hard to imagine how it could ever be free of that. Yes. Whereas it seems to me if, but, you know, the, the concept of a, of a initially good creation, even if not yet complete and perfect, but initially good, um, does give you a, a category for thinking, well, it, it can be good again. Um, and without it, it seems to me you, 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 it's very difficult to imagine that. I, I think that's right. And, and if you're going to blame creatures other than God for the way creation is, then it's going to have to be historical in some sense mm. because creatures are creatures mm. of time yeah. and space. Yeah. Uh, and if it's not an event, then it's the fault of the creator, it seems to me. Um, I mean, now, exactly how you locate it, when you locate it, where you locate it, how you interpret the language. There, I agree, there's a lot of symbolic language. There's a lot of uh, language of the earth-shattering kind. Yeah. The, um, the second part of um, Edmund's question is, um, is, I guess, a related one, which is to do with um, the language in the, in the New Testament about, about the air and the heavens. You know, Paul refers to the prince of the power of the air. There's all this business about um, the authorities in the heavenly places, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and so on. And his question is very simple. What are, what are the air and the heavenly places to which um, the New Testament um, refers? Are they the same thing? Who's in it? Um, what goes on there? 
Has it got anything to do with the fall of Satan and all that sort of thing? So what's the air in the heavenly places and what's all that about? Uh, a simple question, you say. You describe it as a, a simple, question. <laughs> simple question. Yes, they're all very simple, these exactly. theological questions, aren't they? Um, I take it that he's referring... Well, he has a kind of vision of the world that it's multidimensional. Um, that what we see is not all there is. Mm. Um, that underlies the whole kind of scriptural tradition, that the belief that there's something else going on, be it from Jacob's Ladder, where you see different realms and connections between those mm. different realms. Jason, Jason, Jacob, not Jason's. <laughs> Jacob's Ladder is precisely um, a connection mm. between and traffic between mm. uh, heaven and earth, between the different dimensions of reality. Mm. Um, and I take it that that is what's going on there with the, the heavenly realms. Um, it's slightly different from heaven itself where there is just God and, and, and all that's good and where God's will happens, but there are other realms where there is battle, where there is conflict, where there is... Um, so would you say it's a kind of another dimension of reality beyond yes. the ones that we immediately yes. perceive that, through our senses? That's how I'd interpret it, yeah. Which I think, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. It's, it's, and in a way, it, it helps not to think of it as the air in terms of the sky, you know, sort of several thousand feet up where the aeroplanes fly, because uh, often the language can seem like that. And yep. I suppose in, maybe in the sort of medieval paintings and so on, you get angels and demons sort of floating around in Concentric circles up the sky and so on. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but actually thinking of it as of another dimension of reality as opposed to a space within this this universe is actually a more helpful... I think, I, right. keep it. I think that's right. I always, yes, I always, again, I have to, I interject like that note of, of caution or maybe oh. humility about. This is your job. Humility. There's a difference between, <laughs> I guess, we're all very aware of, of various Christian um, cultures that like, of ones that we're perhaps even a part of, that, that make very definite statements about the map of the mm -hmm. spiritual map and where mm. exactly the principalities are and mm. where they mm. actually have power over. And, I think there's a big difference between saying, yes, the, there is more to your philosophy than you can see, and saying, I know exactly oh, yes. how it all fits yeah, together. Kind of, and yeah. I think that's mm. what I don't like is, mm. is, is people who, who draw, I've, I've even seen it before, they'll sort of draw a spiritual map and they'll yes. show you that this principality is yeah. in charge of this area yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I mean, I think mm. when Paul talks about powers and principalities, as as you know, it's it's complicated, and it can refer to um, to government as well as to spiritual mm. powers. It yes. seems mm. to refer to nameless, faceless authority mm. figures mm. rather than necessarily. Well, that's why I think the parties. idea of it is a dimension rather than a place, and yeah. space helps because yeah. then you can see how um, principalities and powers can work through human institutions. Yeah, for sure. Which choose to yeah. depart from the the kingdom of God and God's ways within the world, as opposed to some sort of um, sort of demonic figure floating in a particular space yeah. um, that's quite separate from human institutions. Well, then we get back into medieval yeah. superstition, which I yeah. don't want to get into. No, ideally not. Mm. Although, yeah, we must speak well of the medievals as well because they got a lot of things <laughs> right better than well, we did. that's true. And, and one um, of the things about Paul and, and, in fact, I think that whole first century Jewish kind of way of thinking was that it precisely didn't split up what we split up. It, you know, it talks about principalities and powers and he's quite happy that that might involve yeah. human structures, Absolutely. human individuals, Absolutely. the emperor yeah. and yeah. Satan. Yeah. It just, it, yeah. it was all part of the yeah. same thinking. Yeah. There. We, we tend to parcel these out into different things and have a problem therefore trying to understand what he means. Yeah. Whereas in fact, yeah. he held it all together much more easily. Yeah. yeah. 
Very good. Thank you. And uh, we, we've got one last question. I think we've got time for one more, which is um, from uh, Andrew McLean, who we've gone from Cambodia to um, Alabama, and now we're in Tunbridge Wells, um, <laughs> which is where this one comes from, Tunbridge Wells in England, for those of you who are listening in other parts of the world. And this is a question on, again, a little simple, simple one. Uh, I've been enjoying the um, go for the last year or so and just listened to the one we did on Just War. Uh, and I can now understand how a soldier can respond to his job and the concept of just war, but I'm less clear on a personal conflict. Um, and uh, he refers to a book that he just read, Wild at Heart. Uh, the author says he encouraged his son to hit a bully, and that was part of the way God had written had written men, I guess what how men are meant to, uh, to act. I'm strongly against this concept, as I feel we're called to something harder and truer, even as Christian children. Turning the other cheek is one of the boldest concepts in Christianity, and it's often easier, therefore, to ignore it entirely. Um, so um, so how do we deal with that? Because I guess as a parent, it is quite tricky sometimes, isn't it, to know how you counsel your child who's being bullied. Um, do you just encourage them to just take it and be compliant and, um, and so on? Or actually, how does turn the other cheek work in that kind of context? Hmm. Stephen? Well, it's interesting that we were just talking about Paul's relationship to powers and principalities, actually. Because I think sometimes... Uh, we have missed maybe that one of the central claims about Christianity that's so subversive is its relationship to power, mm. is a Christian's relationship to power. And also, interestingly, a Christian's – you're right. You're right. You might be given the right to be treated by your government, for instance, correctly. Mm. Or you might be treated the, – the, the stronger brother in, in some of these debates about the sacrifice – meat sacrifice to idols that you find in Romans or in Corinthians, the stronger brother – is supposed to submit to the weaker brother. And Paul doesn't say that the weaker brother is correct. He says, no, you're the stronger brother. You mm. are right, mm. but you have to submit anyway. And there seems to be an interesting ethic going on, which is the Christian ethic is being willing to lay down what is rightfully yours mm. for a different purpose. Uh, and this is related to what Paul talks, I think, when he's mm. talking about um, everyone should submit to the ruling authorities mm. in Romans And that 13. fits in with the 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 passages about the cross yeah exactly precisely what god does what christ does in the cross is to lay down what he has a right to and, and the great incarnation in philippians 2 yeah is christ yeah. submitted to death even death on a cross and yeah. so if you're going to talk about turning the other cheek hmm. you you need to talk about that as a christian i think one of the great problems that, hmm. that this letter writer has really correctly pointed out it's how easy it is to ignore and how Christendom has ignored, has mm. just written this off so quickly as, oh, that's unworkable. Mm. Mm. Uh, and the point is not that it's unworkable or that it will work. The point is that Jesus asked us to do it. Mm. Uh, and it speaks to a, a, yeah. a bigger way of looking at yourself in the and, world. And in a way that it, in some ways, it, it does work in the end. In a, yeah. in a way that it, because obviously retaliation usually leads to more retaliation. It actually makes the problem yeah. worse rather than better. It yeah. never solves problems. As we see in the Middle East. Exactly, that's right. Whereas and elsewhere. There are enough examples in the last century of of of, a, of this kind of Christ-like, not necessarily Christian, but Christ-like reaction to violence. And you think hmm. immediately of civil rights movements and Martin yeah. Luther King. You think of Gandhi. You think of, of um, the amazing things that happened there. You think of Nelson Mandela. So you know there, there were sort of three of the most intractable, 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 right, intractable. That's the word. <laughs> unpronounceable intractable problems of the twentieth. 20th century that yeah. were actually solved by by turning the other cheek yeah. by a kind of not a not a sort of uh, a just compliant oh yes I'll do whatever you say 
but a sort of principled resistance, a sort of non-violent resistance to... Hmm. Nelson Mandela's wasn't non-violent, was it? But um, uh, not initially, anyway. Not initially. But in a way, it, one might argue, actually, that, that his, his, his ultimate sort of... What actually worked. What actually worked was not actually the violence in the early stage of the, of the struggle of the ANC, but actually mm-hmm. the later stage of, of yeah, his, yeah. his resolve not to seek retaliation for mm-hmm. the crimes that have been committed under, under apartheid. But that raises, um, you're right to, to qualify what you said earlier about compliance, should we be compliant and turn the other cheek. Um, how much is turning the other cheek uh, actually quite revolutionary? How much is it um, challenging the other person? I, I don't know whether you've come across Walter well, Wink's stuff on right. this, where he suggests that um, you, know, you have to hit somebody with um, the right fist uh so to, to, to turn the other cheek is is actually to encourage them to to hit you properly rather than slap you as an insult right uh, and that that therefore is, is, okay. is saying look you know yeah treat me as a treat me as an equal treat me as a well a real this, person here now this is somewhere where christianity like everyone in the modern age thinks thinks of submission as a dirty word but there's christian submission is not cringing inferiority mm-hmm. it is it is the submission of the believer to the non-believer. It is the submission of the stronger to the weaker. There's something... I'm still working it out, <laughs> but we've not got it right. Mm. And the submission of the person who allows an aggressor to hit him again is not cringing inferiority. Yeah. It, mm. is, it, is, it comes from strength and, and a, a, a lack not, of fear. And it's not running away, is it? No. That's the this distinction. Is the, uh, yes, a lot of Christian it? peacemakers who take this seriously yeah. say... We won't do harm, but that doesn't mean we're, we're going to be away from where, yeah, there's, exactly. where there's trouble. We're going to be right in the middle of it. We yeah. just won't contribute to the harm, yeah. to the violence. Yeah. And there is a big difference between being a coward and being a peacemaker. Yeah. Yeah. But Graham, you're, you're a parent. I'm a parent. What happens if and when your child comes back and says, I've been bullied at school, if they come back mm. with a you know, mm. black eye or mm. Mm. broken nose or whatever mm. it is, mm. um, do you just say, well, take it? Or... Other other avenues that you need to explore as well. Yeah, I guess you obviously um, talk with the school. Sure. Yeah, I mean there are other avenues you you do. You talk to the. I mean, you know, it seems to me that you bring in the authorities to make sure those kind of thing happening. And bully, bullying is obviously one of the most horrendous things, and it happens not just amongst children; it happens amongst adults as well. Um, talking to a friend the other day who had to leave a job because of bullying in that that environment. So it's 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 a very widespread thing. But it seems to me that it's this mixture between i mean retaliation doesn't usually solve the problem hmm. it usually makes it worse but running away doesn't solve the problem either no because that also exacerbates and it builds up the kind of confidence of the bully and it and so on but it's this difficult but quite challenging kind of resistance which is standing there and not willing being willing to back down but not retaliating in the same way that that you want to kind of encourage and i, I think and that's very difficult for a child to do, I know. But um, it seems to me that the, the response is somewhere in between those two, two things. Mm. It's not to run away. It's not to hit back to do exactly what the bully's doing and, and join in that cycle of violence. But it's that sort of refusal to to exercise violence within it, but also that refusal to run away. But, but well, then bringing in the authorities within that is, too. Is that right? Uh, is it not? ever right to run away. I mean, if I'm, if some people come up to me in the street and looking at carrying knives or whatever, um, mm. 
I don't want to use violence on them. I don't want them to use violence on me. Yep. Running away yep. is a pretty good option, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is. I mean, it is in those circumstances because it seems to me that's something which is a, you know, it's a, it's an incident that happens. I think if it's, a, it's an ongoing relationship, if you're talking about a, a kid at school yeah. who's casing day after day, yeah. bullying from a group of people, actually to constantly run away doesn't seem to me to solve the problem. Neither does, does, phys- you know, does physical retaliation. Yeah. Um, I do have one more thing to add to this yeah. as well. We, we've all been talking very individualistically. We've assuming that it's one chap, some little boy, all by himself, having yeah. to stand up against the bully. Yep. Um, Stanley Harvass is very good on this. He's, a, he's an American um, uh, theologian and also a, a pacifist. But he's very good because he says, uh, the Christian who obeys these turn-the-other-cheek mm-hmm. principles is not by herself. Yep. She yep. is part of a church. Mm-hmm. And the yep. church has to obey mm-hmm. these principles. Yep. And the church, as a as a as a mm. as a new type of social existence mm. in the world, mm. they follow these principles, and so the person is not just left to their own devices. You know that, and, yeah. and so it's kind Very of a challenge. Point. These these some of these commands are a challenge not mm. to you as an individualistic believer standing against the system. Yeah. It's a challenge to a, mm. the church sure. to yeah. support each other. And there's a way in which the church and the, and, and the Christian community can come together to actually support the individual in yeah. that context. For sure, there's a brilliant example of it. Well, I mean, not in a Christian context, but there's a film I saw the other day called, I think it's called Looking for Eric it was um, this film about a, a sort of guy in the north of England who's a massive Man United fan and um, he's sort of depressed and he's, his kids well, are you would be, wouldn't you <laughs> no 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 let's no. <laughs> not get it let's not get it um, but basically you know he's, his, his kids are being sort of victimised by a, a kind of gangland kind of thug and um, and and uh, Eric Cantona appears to him in sort of dreams and, and, and sort of counsels him on how to address this. And actually, basically, the way the thing is dealt with by, is basically by all his mates coming around together and actually solving this problem as a group. And it was a fascinating example of that very thing. So I'd recommend, you know, as a result of this God point, you go and read C.S. Lewis's three um, science fiction trilogies and you watch the film Looking for Eric. So there's the answer. <laughs> um, we've uh, run out of time. Mike has to go off and um, do something important. I have to take service. I you do. do indeed. Um, and so thank, thank you, you, Stephen, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. And uh, we will be back next time for Godpod number 50. Great. If you can hold your breath and excitement for that moment, um, try, and, try and do what you can. And save up for the champagne. Exactly. So, goodbye. Goodbye. That was Godpod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.